Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 13, verse 22, where we are going to begin looking at a passage which is really yummy. <laughs> There's some passages that I can't, I can hardly even move through them, and this is one of those. I, I always tell myself, I'm going to preach the whole section, and it never happens. It just never happens. There's so many good things here, but uh, I think you'll you'll like it as we go th- go through slowly. I just want to deal with a lot of sometimes when you're preaching, there are certain little theological implications that you want to address and you want to talk about, but they just you just don't have enough time. They're too complicated and they're too important to really rush through. So why rush? Throughout history, there has been times when. The church has been mostly full of unbelievers. I think this has been kind of the common thing throughout the centuries. For instance, when Constantine became emperor, he required everybody to join the church and become a Christian. And when this happened, many people, you know, at sword point had to become Christians. The problem is, is you don't become a Christian that way. Um, you can't say become a Christian right now and go to heaven or you're going to die. Um, that just doesn't work. There are no such thing as forced conversions. Uh, later on in history, there were times when the Roman Catholic Church or different Protestants, you know, tried to force people to become Christians. And uh, these are all politically motivated, uh, power motivated um, ways of trying to bring about unity or peace or whatever. But it just doesn't work that way. Now, if you take an empire or a nation, a community, and force people to become Christians at sword point, what you have is a bunch of unbelievers who call themselves Christians. Those unbelievers then often will go to church and send their kids to church, and it'll become kind of a cultural thing, but that doesn't mean they're all saved. Satan has also raised up preachers, especially in these latter days, who think that if they can say the right thing, create the right emotion, get the right lilting music and the right drama and the right whatever, they can basically lead anybody to Jesus. Thus, through emotional pleading and theatrical endeavors, they do get people emotionally charged up. Those people do raise their hands or come forward and pray a prayer or sign a card or whatever. They're then followed up on. They're told that they're now Christians. They're now saved. And once you're saved, you are always saved. You can never lose your salvation. Thus, all of these people think they're saved and most are not. So other times Satan has made uh, Christianity kind of a cultural, fashionable thing. You know, it's you remember back then in 1969, the bird song on their ballad of easy rider. Jesus is just all right with me. It was cool to be into Jesus, you know, in the latter 60s, or early 70s. It was cool. It was fashionable to hang out and have Bible studies and, you know, read your Bible. And, you know, that was kind of how it was. But then as soon as Jesus went out of fashion, then everybody became what they really were. A few were saved. Most were not. Finally, there are others who are kind of slowly indoctrinated into Christianity. They, They grow up in a Christian home. They have Christian parents, they have Christian friends, they get used to the Christian church culture, the jargon, the hymns, the, you know, Sunday morning services, midweek meetings or whatever. 
and they're really convinced they're saved. Maybe at a point in time, they feel sorry about their sins. And, you know, they ask Jesus in their heart or whatever. But many of these people are not Christians. They just feel compelled to call themselves that because after all, they're Christians or their parents are Christians. Their friends are Christians. They go to a Christian church. Why wouldn't they be a Christian? Everybody think they were weird if they didn't call themselves a Christian. So, of course, I'm going to call myself a Christian. You know, besides, I want to be associated or, you know, I want to be baptized or I want to be able to eat those that little cracker and drink that little juice on Sunday morning when I'm hungry. You know, there's a lot of reasons that people claim to be Christians that don't make them Christians. And Satan knows that the person who is further from Christianity is the person who is in church who thinks they're saved. That person is in the greatest danger. They're just inoculated into Christianity, surrounded by Christianity, thinking they're Christians when they're not. And therefore, they never look to be saved because they already are. Well, the Jews had the same basic kind of problem. The Mishnah said that basically all Israelites are going to share in the world to come. They're all going to get to heaven except, you know, those who deny the resurrection. Those who say that the law of God wasn't from heaven and those who are Epicureans. That is those who don't believe that God intervenes into the world and works with men in this world. They said, but everybody else is getting through. You just need to be a child of Abraham. So the common thought among the Jews at the time of Jesus is we're all going to heaven. You know, that's why Jesus has to rebuke them. You know, you think that you're going to heaven because you're children of Abraham. God is able to make children of Abraham from these stones. That's not it. That's not true. And so back then, like many today, there were a lot of very religious people. We're talking synagogue attending, believing Jews who believe in the law, who keep kosher, kosher kitchen. You know, they're, these are Jews and they all think they're going to heaven because they are Jewish. Just like many people today think they're going to heaven because they go to church or because they call themselves Christians. This brings us to our text in Luke 13, verse 22 and following, where Jesus is working his way to Jerusalem, where he's going to die for our sins. He's stopping by at various villages and he's teaching. And this is one of those instances. So follow along as I read, starting in verse 22 of Luke 13. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, Are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter or will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up for us. He will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all ye who are all you evildoers. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. 
And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Well, from this portion of Luke, Jesus gives us five truths about getting to heaven so that we are not deceived into thinking we are on our way to heaven and then end up in hell. So we are not one of those people who goes to church, calls himself a Christian, and then ends up in hell. So that we kind of let Christianity pass us by, thinking we're Christians all the while, but are not. The parallels between the Jews at that time and Christians at this time is striking. Now this text is so loaded with good things and has so many pivotal things to say and implications we're just gonna i don't know how long we're gonna take in here we're gonna take as long as it takes we may get through in one more week it may be on i don't know 10 weeks i don't know but the first thing we're gonna look at the first two things this morning first is an honest question that you should ask look at verse 22 and he was passing through one city and village to another teaching and proceeding on his way to jerusalem this is the latter part of his ministry. He's about to die. He's teaching in these villages. He has tried many approaches to break up their stony, unbelieving hearts. He still has a rather small group following him, which is surprising in that he's been preaching for three years. But he has very few followers, almost universal rejection. He's going through the countryside. He's trying to see them come to salvation. He longs for them to be saved. He loves them. He wants them to be saved. He's tried miracles, he's tried parables, he's tried threatening, he's tried baiting, he's tried everything. And as he approaches, as we're going to see in this chapter and later on in verse 14, he starts saying some very hard things. You know, when you've got certain kinds of nuts, you know, pecans have pretty soft skins on them. Walnuts, you got to give a little bit, you know harder crush on those you start looking at macadamia nuts man they take a blow and so the harder the heart the harder you have to strike it and so jesus now and we're just going to see this and i'm just warning you begins to strike very hard and sometimes when he strikes hard it is confusing to christians who live in an age of ease and social Christianity. And they wonder, why is he doing that? Well, look at verse 23. Jesus has been striking at them. He's been rebuking them. He's been warning them, threatening them of hell. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? This is such an excellent question. And who knows why the guy asked it? Maybe he was being convicted of his sins. Maybe he was wondering how Jesus compared to the, the the rabbis who were saying that everybody pretty much is going to get in. Maybe he was wondering because Jesus has basically condemned all the religious leaders. He told the religious leaders that, you know, they were the children of Satan. And when they made a disciple, he became 10 times more the children of hell than themselves. He, he warned the multitudes of judgment. He said, a Nineveh is going to judge you. That pagan place where a guy came spit up out of a whale and went and preached a message and they all repented and you won't repent and i've done miracle after miracle 
miracle. I'm the Messiah. And you still won't repent. So, I mean, he's, he's laying into them. And the whole implication of all that Jesus is saying is pretty much everybody's lost. And that runs antithetically to what they've been told by the religious leaders. Pretty much everybody's saved. And so this man is moved to ask the very pertinent question at the time. Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? Let's just say. If you knew Jesus said, if Jesus would have said, well, 90 percent will get to heaven. That would be pretty good, wouldn't it? I mean, you know, if you're a gambling person, even if you're not. Um, nine to one odds, you know, that's good. You know, to think that, you know, chances are if I'm just a little bit better than the the worst scum of society, I'm going to get in, especially if I go to church, a Bible teaching church, and I'm giving and serving in the ministry, obviously I'm going to get in because if nine or 10, nine out of 10 are getting in, I'm, I got to be in that group. And so you'd feel pretty good about that. But what if Jesus said 10% are getting in? Now that's a little bit more uneasy because you're thinking "Hmm, one out of 10 people. That's not very many. You know, there's about 300 million people in California, 10%. You got about 30 million people. Do you think there's 30 million born again believers in this country? 30 million people who love Jesus, who love his word, who are serving and giving and sharing their faith. (laughs) Let's just say there were. Let's just say there were. And let's say they all lived in California. California has about 38 million people. So one out of four people in California would be saved. And the entire rest of the nation, all 49 other states would all perish and go to hell. That's if one out of 10 were saved. That is a scary thought, isn't it? What makes it more scary is these Jews were religious, synagogue attending, temple worshiping, feast observing Jews. So he's he's saying this to religious people, not the whole nation, pagans and included. He's speaking to the religious minority and saying A few. What if you knew that only one out of ten in this room were going to heaven? That would be scary. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, this is a text that's similar to ours. It's at a different time, at a different place. But the Sermon on the Mount, he says, enter through the narrow gate. He uses gate instead of door. He gives a little extra information for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. And you know what? Jesus is right. Few people are going to get in. A few people are going to get in. Only a few. This brings us to Jesus' answer in our text. And this is the scary answer you should heed. Look at the end of verse 23 and beginning of verse 24. And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. 
Now here we have two very unsettling words. If you know what they mean and you consider their implications, the first word we have is strive. In the Greek, this word is agonizomai. And you could probably guess what English word we derive from agonizomai, the word agony or agonize come from that word. This word is no mild term. This word can be used to describe a fight to the death. To expend extreme effort to struggle with strenuous zeal against opposition in order to achieve something. Jesus says, agonize to get in the narrow door. You know, we just witnessed the Olympics and those athletes have agonizomide. You know, you just can't, I don't know, you can't watch it and just think, man, look how, look, look how good a shape they're in. Look at that guy just, you know, flip around on the floor and do triple flips. You ever try to do that? Don't. It's, it's dangerous. You know, just to see their strength and they get that way by training four years and some of them train from Olympic to Olympics to Olympics. It's, it's amazing. And then we often have these conversations as, you know, the announcers telling us about how hard the person trained and what they did. And we just, we just say, man, I could never do that. I could never set aside four years of my life, be on a strict diet, train six days a week, you know, six hours a day. It's like, I couldn't do that. But that's what Jesus says. You want to get to heaven? You better agonizomite. Now that poses a problem in a world where not very many people are agonizing to get into heaven. But Jesus commands us here, and it's a plural command, which means when the man asks the question, are there just a few who are being saved? Jesus then doesn't respond, you single man strive. He says, all of you listening to me, agonize to get into heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. Overcome every obstacle. Strive, struggle. Expend every amount of effort to get in. And why does Jesus tell us to put forth such extreme effort? Because of the second scary word. Because the door you have to get through is a narrow one. Now, on Sunday, Alvin you know, he has taken it upon himself to create a sermon slide. You probably saw it up there this morning, some cartoon thing with some little thing with a little door in the end and the Mount Doom on the other side. I don't know what it was. And, you know, he sent me at first a couple slides. I said, well, there's no door in any of these slides. There's no agonizing in any slides. I was like, well, I can't find a narrow door. And, you know, you think about it. Who makes narrow doors? Who would ever make a door so narrow you couldn't get through easy? You go to the building supply place, you know, you can get 24-inch doors, but they don't sell them any narrower than that because if they did, who could fit through? If you get somebody who's pretty big, they can't even get through. So why would you make a door to access something that is so narrow you have to 
strive, agonize to get through it. See, it just doesn't make sense. Therefore, it's very difficult to find pictures that work. Let's just say you you have entered into a very large, well-manicured park. With, it has this big wall, stone wall around the outside of it. You come in and you're just taking a stroll. You see the big trees and their canopies and the shade and the green grass and the shrubs and flowers. You're just walking around the perimeter of the park. And you're enjoying yourself. You're about halfway around when you stop and you notice that in the wall there is a funny little door. And it is narrow. And you're thinking, that is strange. Why would anybody put that there? I mean, you can see the doorknob and you try it and you can even open and close it. And you're thinking, hmm, what's that for? It's so skinny, you couldn't even get through it. And then you hear somebody on the blowhorn. Excuse me. And you think, what's that? And you turn and you see about 200 yards away, there's a guy in a big truck standing on the roof of that truck. And he says, I'm going to let the lion out now. You better get through the door. And the gate comes open and this 500 pound male lion steps out looks around, fixes its gaze upon you and starts trotting in your direction. Uh, You wonder what's going on. Hey, what's going on here? This isn't a zoo, is it? And the guy says, I'd get through the door. Bye. And you realize I can't run back to the entrance where I came in. I've got to get through that, that door. But it's so narrow. So you try and get up to it and you realize, you know, I can get my head in, but my body is not fitting. You hear the lion roar. You're now getting a little scared because that doorway is about one inch narrower than your rib cage. And so in desperation and fear, you start pulling off your jacket and your sweater you think, okay, all right, how am I going to do this? How, how am I going to get through? And the, the lion's covered about half the distance by now, and it's starting to run a little bit faster. And it runs very silently. You keep looking over your shoulder, and so in desperation, you begin to claw, and you begin to throw yourself into the door jam, and you blow out all your air, and you crush through, and it's scraping your chest and your back, and you pop through, slam the door shut just as the lion's claws hit the door. You have agonizamide to get through the narrow door. And this is the exact thing that Jesus is talking about. You need to strive to enter heaven. Because the Lion of Judah is coming. And he will rip you to shreds if you don't seek him now. The statement strive to enter through the narrow door should be enough to cause any unrepentant sinner to break out into a cold sweat. Judgment is coming. This is no idle threat. This is no myth. This is going to happen. And there's going to be a lot of people who find themselves on the outs on the wrong side of the wall when the lion comes in judgment. And then it is at that time they're going to say, 
I need to get through the door. Jesus is saying, you need to do it now. But the problem is, is we don't want to do it now because we don't want Jesus telling us what to do. We don't want Jesus controlling our life. We don't want Jesus, you know, beating up on us and making us feel, you know, bad about our sins. And we like our sins. Our sins bring us pleasure. And so if I were to strive to enter now i'd have to make changes in my life i don't want to make those changes i want to be my own god i want to be in control of my own life and so i'll put it off until later i want to enjoy my stroll in the park and so i'm just going to pretend the lion isn't coming that is so foolish that is insanity then jesus says something even more scary look at the middle of verse 24 for many i tell you will seek to enter And will not be able. This is one of those texts where it is very important to notice what the text does and does not say. First notice. All do not refuse to believe there is a heaven and hell. There is a large contingent described as the many who do believe in heaven and hell. And there is a point that they do want to enter in. But when Jesus says, even though that's true, they're going to seek to enter and they won't be able. There'll be a belief there. There'll be a desire there, a seeking there, but a not entering into heaven. They will get devoured. They will perish. Second, notice the words Jesus uses. He doesn't say, strive to enter the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will strive to enter, will not be able. Notice he didn't use that word, did he? The second time. He uses a completely different word with a different verb tense. He says, but many will seek to enter, not strive to enter. The word strive describes this agonizing effort and the word seek describes a complacent you know yeah i kind of desire that i you know want to do that someday yeah i know i need to exercise and floss floss my teeth or whatever you know it's something that we agree is a good thing but later he uses strive in the present i command you now to enter by agonizing effort but in the future people are going to try and complacently enter we might paraphrase it this way i command you right now to agonize to enter through the narrow door for many i tell you will in the future put forth a little effort to enter that narrow door but will not be able to enter and will perish in hell that's what he's saying the word seek is a much milder word than strive And Jesus does admit they are going to seek probably when they stand before Jesus on judgment day and they say, Lord, Lord, have we not? They then want to get into heaven because they see their doom is coming and now they want to make something happen, but it doesn't. And to the Jews, I'm sure it happened when Titus came to conquer Rome and they saw so many thousands being killed and then they wanted something to happen. It's too late. They died. Many people think they have plenty of time. 
I can just enjoy the pleasures of the world now, the sins of the world now. I don't have to read my Bible. I don't have to serve. I don't have to give. I don't have to live my life for the Lord. I mean, I'll do the Christian thing. I'll put on the Christian face, face, speak the Christian jargon when I'm at church, you know, blend in. But I mean, come on, you don't expect me to do that when I'm at work, when I'm playing, when no one's around. You know, I need to be what I really am, and I don't mind pretending to be a Christian when no one's watching. Well, God is watching. And do you think that being a Christian is easy? Do you think that, you know, as as the car plunges off the cliff, and I'm heading down towards the rocks below, I'll just say, Lord, I repent, believe, heaven. Think that's what you're going to be able to do? Oh, yeah. Don't you remember the thief on the cross? Last minute, right before he died, he cried out, Jesus saved him. You know what? Jesus did. But listen, don't comfort yourself with deathbed conversions. Those stories, people say, oh, yes, so-and-so on their deathbed, they gave their life to Christ. And you know what? Praise God if he did. One minister did a study of a thousand people who had deathbed conversions and then became well. Only two in a thousand kept walking with the Lord. So never take the exception and turn it into the norm. Jesus says you strive now to enter in. Don't be one of those lazy, procrastinating, sin-loving people who thinks that you can live your whole life for Jesus, sin against Jesus, hate Jesus, you hate his law, you hate his people, you hate his church, and then at the very end, you say, okay, listen, I don't want to go into hell, so save me. It's not going to work. Now, this brings up a whole other issue about striving to enter, if you think about it. Does it kind of bother you when Jesus says things like this? You have to do this, and if you don't do this, you won't get into heaven. What does that kind of work into? Sounds like salvation by works. I want you to know. If you look for grace, you're not going to find it in the rest of the book. He's going to go from city to city, from village to village, and he's going to give hard calls. If you don't do this, you're going to perish. And then move on. They go, well, Jesus, couldn't you know, like explain a little bit? Could you like, you know, freight in a little Pauline theology? No, he doesn't do that. And so some people look at this and see, but it just seems that if we have to strive and we have to do this to enter in, that salvation seems to be partly based on our works. But, you know, there's a difference between being the door and going through the door. You know, somebody providing an exit and you taking the exit. But some might argue, yeah, but listen, I can take a small bit of credit for my salvation. After all, I did come to the place in my life where I realized I was missing something. I did come to the place in my life when I began to seek out different religions and I finally talked to somebody about Christianity. I studied my Bible. I listened to what they said. And you know what happened? After I did that for a while, I began to understand the truth. And I began to understand that I needed salvation and what the gospel was. And then I chose to turn from my sins and believe in Jesus. And I was saved. So granted, Jesus died on the cross 
and made atonement and rose again from the dead. Yes, he did all that stuff. But I just want you to know I had a part. I did part of my what I had to do. And, and, and Jesus did what he had to do. And so together we both did what we needed to do. I agonized and I got in. And you know what? This is the common thought of every new believer, almost without exception. And you know why it's the common thought? Because that's what their experience, not the word of God, their experience tells them. They know, yes, I got interested. Yes, I understood. Yes, I believed. And then I was saved. So I did those things. God did his things. And together we got it in the end. And that's what they think. And then they start reading their Bible. And then they come to Romans chapter 3, verse 11. And they read that interesting section, actually 10 through 18. It all says pretty much the same thing. But that one verse kind of sticks in their mind where it says, and there are none who seek after God, not even one. And then they wonder, hmm, how is that? I sought him. Why does Paul say no one seeks God? If I sought God, and they don't know how to answer the question, it's, it troubles them, though. They keep reading along. They keep reading along. They, they come to 1 Corinthians chapter 2.14, where Paul says this, But the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And then he wonders what that means and so he comes up to the preacher and says you know i read this verse here what does this word cannot understand them mean he says well it means in the greek does not have the power to experientially know the truth of god's word and then he says oh and he goes away thinking to himself hmm that is interesting I sought God, but it says I don't. I understood the gospel, but it says I can't. Hmm. And then he reads further in his Bible and he comes to Ephesians and he gets to chapter two. And Paul says this in verses one through three. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And he thinks that is really fascinating. It says here that before I became came to Christ, I was dead in trespasses and sins. Well, obviously that couldn't mean physical death because I'm still physically alive. He must be talking about spiritually dead here. He goes, I know if somebody is physically dead and you know, if I were to go down to the morgue and say, wiggle your toe. Speak to the corpse, raise your hand nod do anything they can't do anything because physically because they're physically dead so if i am spiritually dead i wouldn't be able to do anything spiritual if i'm spiritually dead but salvation is a spiritual thing now they're really confused okay i don't seek god i can't understand the things of god And I can't do anything spiritual. And yet I sought God. 
I understood the gospel and I've been born again. How does that work? A lot of people just, they never quite get that fixed in their mind. It just is a dilemma. And it's a dilemma because they are basing their doctrine as a young believer off of their experience rather than the word of God. Then they keep reading and they come to John chapter six, verse 44, where Jesus lets the multitude know no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And then I will raise him up on the last day. And you go, oh, there we go. I wasn't seeking God. God was seeking me and God drove me. And then I came to Christ. No kidding it's just like this epiphany i got it i got it i got it now and then you go i'm gonna go back to first corinthians 2 14 i'm gonna read the context and you read the context and all of a sudden you discover in the context that paul is talking that we know things because of the spirit of god so if the natural man unaided by the spiritual spirit of god cannot know the things of god then if we know the things of god it must be because the holy spirit was working in my life and then you're reading John 3 and Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus. Do you remember that discussion where he said this in John 3, verses 5 through 8? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you cannot hear the sound of it. But but do, but do you can hear the sound. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. And you know, he says, so is everyone who's born of spirit. That's how it is. And you can go outside and you can hear the wind, right? Rushing through the trees. Well, you're not. Are you really hearing the wind? Then you see the trees move. Are you seeing the wind? A lot of times you say things on a windy day. Look. It's really windy. Why? Because we see the wind? No. We see what the wind is doing. The wind is invisible. So it is when God's spirit begins to work in a person's life. We don't see the Holy Spirit drawing them, opening their eyes to the truth, helping them understand the gospel. We don't see any of that. What do we see? The effects. A changed and transformed life. Oh, you say to yourself, I'm beginning to see the father was drawing me. The Holy Spirit was enlightening me to the truth. The Holy Spirit was working in me behind the scenes, even though I couldn't see the spirit working. It was working because look at the effects in my life. This was God. This was all of God. And then you see the more you study the word of God, that God grants us repentance. God opens our heart. God gives us grace and faith to believe. And then we respond to God's saving grace working in our life and then we go oh but there's these two opposite extremes that you come to in the world one is is the person who says you know i'm a christian because i call myself one because i go to church because i grew up in a christian home kind of social thing or whatever because i was baptized or raised my hand or whatever or i'm an american you're a Christian. 
you know, because you're better than the average person and you call yourself one. No, no, that's just salvation by works. That's a heresy to say you're a Christian because of something that you've done. The opposite extreme is to not understand how grace works in the life of a person. To think that grace is like a concept detached from anything that happens. That grace means an absence from any sort of action or movement. Like grace is stagnant, which of course is not so. When God grants a sinner repentance, things happen. There is repentance. When he gives them faith, they believe. When he draws them, they come. So they repent, they believe, they come in response to saving grace working in them. So from one perspective, we're doing those things. But from God's perspective, these are the works of grace working upon us. We don't want to seek God. And then God changes our will so that we, our will wants to believe. And we do believe. And we are saved because God is working in us. This grace is working in us. But never think of grace as being stagnant. And we're, you can see this even when you look at text, you know, the grace of God has appeared instructing us to take action, right? Deny ungodliness, to live sensibly and godly and righteously in the present age, to be zealous for good deeds. So grace moves us into action. So grace does not mean the absence of work, the absence of any sort of movement, Grace means the absence of anything, and the theologians call it meritorious work. I'm trying not to use big terms because they make people fall asleep in 10 seconds. But any anything you do that pleases God has to be from his grace working in you. And so if you end up getting saved, though you did believe, repent, and follow Christ, you know from the scriptures that it was God's grace working in your life. But never confuse grace with just like a stagnant concept. When God gives you grace, he is giving you the means. You know, how can they believe without a preacher? And how can the preacher preach if he doesn't have a message? So God uses the means of the preacher, the means of the gospel, the means of prayer. Not just one, not just the other. He uses those things. Those are, that is grace in those different forms. Let's say you're a criminal and the sentence is passed against you. Death by exposure in the Gobi Desert. The Gobi Desert is 1,000 miles long, 500 miles wide. And so the warden takes you out into the middle of the desert, drives you, drives you, drives you. And after about four hours of driving, you get into the middle of the desert in this wasteland. You've gone around sand dunes and there's just dirt and wind and it's it's a wasteland out there. And he says, get out. You're going to have to serve your sentence. And you begin to plead and say, please, please don't leave me here. I don't want to die this terrible death, please. And so he feels compassion on you. He says, okay. 
he reaches into the back of his rig and he pulls out a backpack and sets it on the ground. You see this backpack? Inside this backpack, you're going to find shoes, proper clothing, water, food, map, compass, survival book, and everything you need to get out of here. And I'm going to give these to you as a gracious gift, though you do not deserve it and though you have not earned it. I set them before you freely. I've done this many other times to many other criminals, and I can do this because the sentence is that you're dropped off in the desert. And since I just can't bear to think that, you know, you would suffer such an agonizing death by my grace, I am giving you these gracious gifts so that you can escape such a terrible death. And I can still stay within the realm of the letter of the law. So I give you this command, use these things and you will live, refuse and you will die. Everybody who's made it out has made it out because they've followed that survival book to the T. Goodbye. I drive away. Now think about that. What are you going to do? You're going to sit there on the ground looking at that backpack, waiting for the top to unzip and the clothes to fly through the air and dress you, the shoes to come out and stick themselves on your feet. You're going to wait for the canteen to have its lid unscrewed and the water to float through the air and dribble down your throat. You're going to wait for the map to unfold itself and bring itself before you along with the compass to show you where to walk. Is that what you're going to do? I mean, hey, these are gracious gifts. No. You're going to get on it. But let's just say right before I give you these things, there is this anger. You're angry at me because I'm not going to drive you out because you have to walk out. And so you say, I don't want your backpack. I don't want your water. I don't want any of that stuff. You take it with you. I'll figure out my own way. Because you're just angry. You're scared. So I sit down and I reason with you and I say, okay, let's just calm down here. I got to do this. And so this is my way to give you provision. Now, listen, we're talking the closest place is over 250 miles away. You got to walk it. And I just want you to know, if you walk at the right time and you do what this book says, you could do about 25 miles a day in a week, you'll be out of here. And so you say, okay. And so when I drive away, I have not only given you the gifts, but I have actually changed your will so you want to use the gifts. And you don't just sit there and look at them waiting for them to kind of levitate you out of the the desert. No, you have to put your hand to those gifts. You have to use those gifts. That grace is given to you to move you into action. And the only way you're ever going to escape the desert is to put them into action. So let's say you make it out. You know, you're 250 miles out. And just as you're crossing the line where it's just brown and then turns bright green, there's a McDonald's. And there's actually was a little letter in there with some money so you could have lunch. So you go in there and you're sitting there and you're eating something at McDonald's and drinking a Super Gulp or whatever. And there's a guy there going, man, where you been? 
the middle of the Gobi Desert. What were you doing out there? I was dropped off out there. You were? Yeah. Well, how'd you make it out? I'm tough. (laughs) Is that what you're going to tell them? Man, you don't know how tough I am. No, you'd probably say, well, there was this warden who gave me everything I needed so I could get out of the desert. He gave me the instruction book and he told me what I needed to do. So I took all of his gracious gifts and that's why I'm here today. And when I didn't want to do it, when I was angry, when I was hostile, when I was rebelling, he reasoned with me. He changed my heart so that I wanted to live And so I took his advice. I followed the book and that's why I'm here today. That's how grace works. Grace is not the absence of work. It's the absence of work initiated on our own apart from God. When God grants somebody repentance, they repent. When he gives them faith, they believe. When he moves them, they come. When he opens their heart, they understand. It's not just God's concept. It is concept moving into our lives. And that's why people are confused about that. You know, as Paul says, I labored more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. It's like, what's that? Did you do it or not? Yes, I did it. However, I did it by the grace of God. Well, was it just grace? No, it was me. That was me getting beat up and traveling around and preaching. Well, then it was you. No, it was the grace of God in me too. See, people have a lot of hard time with that because in their mind, they think grace means not a result of works. And it is not a result of our works apart from God's grace, but not absence of work. The same thing with faith. Faith without work is dead. So faith even moves us, which, of course, faith is given by grace. Well, I just want you to know, there is so much more good stuff in this passage that we're just going to end with a a little lengthy quote from J.C. Ryle, who preached a sermon on this same text. And in one section of the sermon, I just want to read it to you, even though he wrote it in 1877, I think it applies today just as well or even better than it did then. Ryle writes, There is a widespread delusion abroad about the number who shall be saved, and that this very delusion is one of the greatest dangers to which our souls are exposed. What do people generally think about the spiritual state of their relatives and friends and neighbors and acquaintances? They know that all around them are going to die and be judged. They know that they have souls to be lost or saved. And what do they consider their end is likely to be? Do they think those around them are in danger of hell? There is nothing whatever to show they think so. They eat and drink. They laugh and talk and walk and work together. They seldom or never speak to one another of God and eternity of heaven and hell. Will they allow that any of their friends are wicked and ungodly? Never. 
whatever may be his way of life. He may be a neglector of the Bible. He may be utterly without evidence of true religion. Yet his friends will often tell you it does not matter. He has a good heart at the bottom and is not a wicked man. And what do people generally think about the spiritual state of others after they are dead? I say that there is an unhappy common fashion of speaking well of the condition of all who have departed this life. It matters little apparently how a man has behaved while he lived. He may have given no signs of repentance or faith in Christ. He may have shown no evidence whatever of conversion or sanctification. He may have lived and died like a creature without a soul. And yet as soon as this man is dead, people will dare say that he is happier than he ever was in this life. They will tell you complacently that he has gone to a better world. They will follow him to the grave without fear and trembling and speak of his death afterward as a blessed change for him. They may have disliked him and thought him a bad man while he was alive. But the moment he is dead, they turn around their opinions and say that he has gone to heaven. And what does all this prove? It proves that people flatter themselves. There is no great difficulty in getting into heaven. It proves plainly that people are of the opinion that most people will be saved. Now, what solid reason can people show us for these common opinions? Upon what scriptures do they build this notion that salvation is an easy business and that most people will be saved? They have none, literally none at all. They have not a text of scripture which supports their view. They have not a reason which will bear examination. They speak smooth things about one another's spiritual state just because they do not like to admit that there is a danger. They build up one another into an easy, self-satisfied state of the soul in order to soothe their consciences and make things pleasant. They cry peace, peace over one another's graves because they want it to be so and would gladly persuade themselves that it is so. Surely against such hollow foundationless opinions as these, a Christian may well protest. Whether we like to believe it or not, hell is filling fast. Many are in the broad way that leads to destruction. Fewer in the way that leads to life. Many, many will be lost. Few, few will be saved. Jesus said in Matthew 7 verses 13 and 14, enter in the narrow way, narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are those who enter by it. How narrow is the gate and restricted is the way that leads to life. And few are those who find it, end quote. That is how it is today. It's still the same way, but worse. I've never done a funeral when someone said, it's too bad he's in hell. It's too bad she lived for the devil all her life and now she is suffering in agonizing flames. I'd love to give you comfort, family, you who hate God, but you're headed there too. Instead, they were a good person. They're in a better place now. Not if they didn't know Christ. There are few who are entering into heaven, Jesus says. And so he commands us to strive to enter through that narrow door. He says, agonize, crush your way through it. Get in there because many are going to procrastinate, wait to the last time. And then when it's too late, they won't be able to enter. And so let's keep these things in mind as we leave here today. There's more to come. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy which drew us to salvation, repentance, and faith in Christ. Father, I think of so many in the world, in America, in the church, who are certain they're good people, that they're on their way to heaven, but like the Jews of old, are deceived and most are perishing, but they don't even know it. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would seek out everybody in this congregation who doesn't know you, that right now your grace would prevail upon them, that you would grant them repentance, that you would open their hearts to the truth, that they would see Jesus as he is, a Savior who came to live and die for our sins on the cross and be resurrected for our justification, that they, in understanding that, would believe by your grace. They would seek to enter that narrow door that they would strive to enter with all their might until they are absolutely sure they have entered in, until they can see the Spirit working in their life and their life changing from one glory to the next. And then may this truth drive all those who know you to see humanity as lost and to remember few of those people, regardless of what they say, are going to enter into heaven unless they too strive to enter in that narrow door. So, Father, may all of us leave here examining our hearts, motivated to help other people come to Christ, that narrow door, the way, the truth, and the life that no one can see the Father but through him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.